Well, our scripture for this morning will be from Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Before we read it together, though, let me uh, reorient us to where we've been. We've been in the gospel of Mark for some time, and, and uh, up until this point, a number of things have been going on in the life of Jesus. He has been preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and, and the miracles that he was doing, the healings, the, um, the uh, casting out of, of demons, were all things that were uh, things that he was doing in order to both, you know, give clear evidence that he was who he said he was, um, but also to give a preview of the kingdom of God that he was there to initiate. And so he's growing in popularity. There's a lot of people that are beginning to follow him. Now, they're not following him because they've got a real clear idea of who he is. In fact, quite to the contrary, they're, they're, they're following him because they think that he is the one who is going to be able to free the Jews from the Roman uh, overlords, the Roman oppressors, Roman rule over them. And so they've got a vision for Jesus, but it was far short of the vision that Jesus had for his ministry. So he's growing in popularity. He's also beginning to experience increasing opposition. And that's what we saw in the latter part of chapter 2 and through Chapter 3, the uh, religious elite are opposed to Jesus. By the time you get to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, they're actually conspiring to kill Jesus. So that's the background to our passage for this morning. What's going on in our passage this morning that we're about to read? Well, a delegation of scribes have made their way from Jerusalem. And it sounds like it is a delegation. It's just not a few people coming out to see what's going on. They're being sent out to see what's happening. They've come down from Jerusalem in order to discredit Jesus. And they do that by accusing him of performing the miracles, doing all the things that he was doing, not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan, which was actually a capital offense, punishable by stoning. So Jesus is not only going to point out how spectacularly their logic fails, he's also going to give them a warning that by saying what they're saying, that Jesus is possessed by an evil spirit, they are actually calling the Holy Spirit a liar. And they're cutting themselves off from their only hope of salvation. So if, if that's what's happening in the text that we're about to read, what does it mean? What does it mean? What's, what's it all about? Well, at one level, it is about the hardening of the hearts of the religious leaders that were opposed to Jesus. These scribes that we're reading about in this passage, they were experts in the Old Testament law, what for them was their Bible. So they, more than anyone else, should have been the first to recognize what was happening, that this is the Messiah. He's, he's doing the works that, the, that our Bible said he would be doing when he came, doing those works in the power of the Spirit. They were the first who should have seen that, but their hearts were so hard that not only did they miss that, they actually went so far as to accuse Jesus of doing these works in the power of Satan. So it, there is a warning for us there. We need to definitely see that. It's not primarily about the question that we tend to make this passage about. It's not about the question that we tend to gravitate toward, which is, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I said or done something that leaves God with no choice but to condemn me eternally? It's not primarily about that. We need to understand that. But it's not 
primarily about that. I think the main thing that we need to see here is something that's veiled in the parables, the, the passage, the, the way that Jesus refuted the scribes is something that's veiled there, but it's made explicit, we'll see in verse 28. And that is that to be a Christian is to be gloriously and to be eternally forgiven and free. This is just one more passage as we read it. It's just one more passage in a slew of passages reinforcing what the Bible says is true for Christians, that to be a Christian is to be fully forgiven. And it is to be fully free, a freedom that we're allowed to experience now in part, a freedom that we'll enjoy eternally, forever. To be a Christian is more than just having a moral slate wiped clean, as good as that is. It's to be reconciled to God and it's to enjoy freedom in His Son, Jesus Christ. Freedom from chains that we may not even recognize have bound us. So yeah, we need to make sure we understand what the unpardonable sin is all about because a wrong understanding of that may be preventing you from coming to Jesus for salvation if you're not a Christian. Or if you are a Christian, a wrong understanding of the unpardonable sin may be keeping you from really having a clear conscience before God. But we especially need to move from unfounded fears about an unpardonable sin to a greater enjoyment of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And so four things we need to look at from this text uh, that I hope you'll see as we read it and hope to prove as we make our way through the sermon. First, we need to see Jesus being falsely accused. And then second, we need to see how forgiveness is misunderstood. And then third, we need to see how Satan is presently bound. And then fourth, we need to see how a believer is eternally free. So, Jesus falsely accused, forgiveness misunderstood, Satan presently bound, and the believer eternally free. Let's read the text. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, hear the word of the Lord. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How could Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to start ourselves off here. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we read this portion of your word, you would be working by your spirit in our hearts to give us a greater sense of the freedom that we have in you and the forgiveness that we enjoy in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first point, Jesus falsely accused. And again, just a reminder of the setting here. Jesus has done a whole bunch of uh, miraculous deeds. He's got a bunch of people following him, listening to his teaching. He's called 12 um, disciples, whom he called apostles, 
to follow him. He's just gone home and his parents or his family uh, heard about all that was happening and they went out to seize him because they were thinking that he was mentally unstable. So they were having a hard time even seeing what was happening right in front of them. And then we've got these scribes that have come down from Jerusalem and they are accusing Jesus of doing all the miracles he's doing by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebul, which is a word that means master of the house. So Jesus is going to pick up on that idea in the example that he gives in just a minute. So they, they make this uh, accusation. Jesus, you know, replies with uh, just like, guys, think through this here. If, if I'm possessed by the devil and I'm casting out demons, wouldn't that actually undermine my cause? I mean, would, would Satan actually be wanting to defeat himself? This doesn't make any sense. So that's Jesus's response. Now, quick note, if this were a made-up story, if, if none of this were real, the people making up the story wouldn't have written this this way. They, they would not have had their hero being widely accused of being possessed by the devil. So the only explanation for the way that it's written and recorded for us is because this is the way it actually happened. These scribes are coming down because the, the works, the miraculous things that Jesus is doing can't be denied. And so the way they're coming is to try to address it by falsely accusing him. Inference, these things were happening. And we need to reckon with the reality of that. But, but let's go on and ask about Satan, right? What about Satan? What do we do with this passage that talks so explicitly about the devil? Well, before you, you know, snicker and laugh and think of old Saturday Night Live skits, um, you know, maybe be willing to consider what your presupposition may be concerning this. If, if you are ready right now to discount uh, the spiritual realm, then what that means is that your belief is that all, the only things that are real are the things that can be seen. You know, either seen with the naked eye or seen with the help of you know, equipment and machines. But the, the bottom line is there's, there's nothing beyond this material world. That's, that's your presupposition if you're willing to reject uh, the spiritual realm altogether. That's an assertion that can't actually be proved, right? It, you, you can't prove that. I, I can't prove to you that the spiritual realm exists, but you also can't prove to me that it doesn't. So when you move outside the realm of proof, you've moved into the realm of plausibility, and so you need to ask, which is more plausible? That, you know, the material world is all there is? That the only things that are real are the things that can be seen? Or that there may be more to what's real than meets the eye? That's kind of the fundamental question. And it's an important question to ask. And there are good reasons to believe it's more plausible to believe in a spiritual realm than that only the things that exist are the things that can be seen. Uh, now, the last couple sermons, I've touched briefly on reasons to consider that. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those or check our, our website or our Facebook page where there are a few books referenced that you could take a look at. Now, if you're, if you're questioning, you know, the reality of God and uh, the existence of the spiritual realm, you're not alone. Um, one of the most famous atheists to do so is uh, a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist who was converted to Christianity. He wrote uh, many different kinds of books, you know, from, from just basic 
Introduction to Christianity, What's It All About? Mere Christianity is the title of that book. I'd encourage you to pick it up and read it. Two, at the other end of the spectrum, works of fiction and children's literature. And uh, I mean, that wasn't even his day job. His day job was to be a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature at both Oxford and Cambridge. So pretty smart guy. Uh, came to belief in Christ. And one of the works that he wrote, one of his works of fiction, was a book titled The Screwtape Letters. Now, The Screwtape Letters, uh, the collection of letters that are all advice on how to undermine faith in God. And, and they were written from the perspective of a senior demon named Screwtape, Screwtape Letters, and he was writing to a junior, uh, his nephew, a junior tempter named Wormwood. And Wormwood's job was to prevent a British man, only known as the patient, from believing in God. And, and Lewis has, uh, has screw tape talk about how, as humans, we tend to snicker when it comes to the idea of the spiritual realm and of demons in particular. So here's a quote from that book, from part of that story. Uh, so again, screw tape talking to Wormwood. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. So we'll talk, more about, um, we'll talk more about Satan, about what's happening in this passage when we get to verse 27. But for now, see two things. Jesus is being a falsely accused. He's being falsely accused of being in league with someone who actually exists. Second point, uh, forgiveness misunderstood. Let, let's talk about the unpardonable sin as it's described to us in this passage. Uh, let's look at verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. All right, so we've, we've circled back to the original accusation that these scribes are accusing Jesus of doing these things according to the power of Satan. How is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Let's answer that question first. Well, in Isaiah chapter 61, so 700 years before what happened here actually took place, Isaiah had prophesied that the Spirit of the Lord, Holy Spirit, would rest upon the Messiah. And in the power of the Spirit, the, whole, the, uh, the Messiah would do things like preach good news, like liberate the captives, like give sight to the blind, and set at liberty all who are oppressed. So that's the Spirit resting on, anointing the Messiah to do that work. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. All those things that I just described, Jesus was doing in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of Jesus' first acts of ministry was to stand up in a synagogue and open up Isaiah. Actually, he was handed the scroll of Isaiah and read from Isaiah chapter 61, and then rolled it up, that passage I just referenced, rolled it up, sat down, and said, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is saying, I am that Messiah who is anointed to do those things. I'm here. 
So what are they doing? What are the scribes doing? They are saying the Holy Spirit is actually a demonic spirit. That what Jesus is doing is not power from God's Spirit, it's actually power from Satan. And so therefore, anything the Holy Spirit's trying to show us through these works can't be trusted. And they are hardened and settled in their belief. So why can't they be forgiven? If that's what it means to be blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, they're calling the works of the Holy Spirit actually the works of Satan. Why can't that be forgiven? Because back in verse 28, Jesus says all blasphemies were forgiven with the exception of this one. So why can't it be forgiven? Well, because the Holy Spirit is given to testify to who the Messiah is. The Holy Spirit's mission in life is to say, this is Jesus. He's the Messiah. Put your hope and your trust in him. To deny the testimony of the Spirit then, because you're saying this isn't God, this is Satan. To deny the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, is to deny Christ, the only one in whom forgiveness is found. Apart from Christ, there is no forgiveness. That's why blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin. So what does that mean for us? Well, again, the eternal sin, the unpardonable sin, is to deny the only one in whom forgiveness of sin is found. It is to deny Jesus Christ by rejecting what the Holy Spirit testifies to concerning Christ. So what the Holy Spirit testifies to from God's Word, what the Holy Spirit testifies to from the witness of other people, people in your life, friends who know Jesus and who are Christians, perhaps. Uh, What the Holy Spirit perhaps is testifying to right now as I preach, and you feel a sense of conviction concerning the truth of these things. To reject that, to say that is false, is to be committing and at risk of being found to have committed over the course of a lifetime this denial of the one way of salvation, the one way of being forgiven, and consequently being cut off from Christ forever. It is to be hardened and to persist in that belief. It is not, I said that once, and then, and then I, now I can't be forgiven, It's not, I spent a whole season of my life, you know, not walking with the Lord and not interested in any of this stuff. Maybe that means I've committed the unpardonable sin and it's too late. That's not what this is saying. It is to be settled and hardened over the course of your life and to die still calling light darkness. Still calling good evil. Still denying Christ as the only hope of salvation. So are you afraid that you've committed the unpardonable sin? Is it like a, a burden that you feel? Like maybe I've done something such that God could never forgive me. If you feel that way, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. But I would say, don't resist fleeing to Christ right now and asking for forgiveness of sin that you may feel 
and enjoying the freedom that is found in him. Don't ever presume upon what may be happening in your life right now. If you are a Christian, don't presume upon the grace that you have. Draw near to Jesus. Be ever drawing closer to him. If you're not a Christian, but you're feeling something of a tug right now, don't resist that. Run to Jesus. He will receive you. And then don't miss the amazing grace of God in verse 28. Can I just go back and read it for us? Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Just think about that. There's only one sin that cannot be forgiven. And that's the sin of denying the only one in whom forgiveness is found. So if you're convinced right now that there's no way God could forgive you, if that's your fear, it is an unfounded fear. Run to Christ and receive the forgiveness that is found in him. All right, now let's come back to this third point, which I'm saying is Satan presently bound. Where do I see that in this passage? And it's back in that veiled uh, statement in verse 27. Take a look there. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now keep in mind, this little enigmatic saying is in the context of Jesus talking about the fact that Satan would never be casting out Beelzebul, the master of the house, would never be undermining his own work by casting out demons. So this is what Jesus is saying here. And we need to see what he's saying. Because this passage or forms of it, exist in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In all the synoptic gospels, you, you get reinforcing the fact that Jesus said this. All right. Jesus is saying, of course, if we understand this in context, that Satan is the strong man. The Satan is the strong man. And that the house is Satan's house. It's this world under sin. But Jesus is the stronger man who's able to bind the master of the house and plunder his goods, which is just a way of saying, set the captives free. Cast out demons. Bring forgiveness of sin as people believe the good news. That's the way to understand what's happening in verse 27. There's rich theology behind that that we've got to touch on real quick because we need to understand what the scriptures teach in order to really appreciate the good news that's there. So what's the theology behind verse 27? Well, first, when did this binding take place that Jesus is talking about? If, if Jesus is the stronger man who binds the strong man, who binds Satan, when did that binding take place? Well, it first began to take place when Jesus resisted and overcame the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. We, we looked at that back in Mark chapter 1. Uh, it continued throughout the course of his ministry. In Matthew's account of this passage, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says, If I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is truly among you. And then he goes on to talk about this passage and, and Satan being bound. Satan not casting out Satan, but Jesus coming in to bind the strong man in his house. So it happened throughout his ministry. It happened at the cross. Fully and finally, Jesus, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, 15, at the cross, Jesus 
overthrew and conquered the enemy. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. So the strong man has been bound. Jesus in the gospel says, I have come to bind the strong man. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, we see that being the case. The strong man, Satan, is bound. So what does that mean? What is the fact that Satan is bound now mean for us? Well, it means that Satan can't prevent the spread of the gospel. It means that he can't dismantle the church because Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It means that he can't rob a Christian of his or her salvation. If you're a Christian, Satan can't rob you of your salvation. And it means that in, he can't in any ultimate sense do a Christian harm. In fact, all his activity is only by God's permission. Job is a great example of that. All the activity of the devil is only by God's permission. And it's always to accomplish God's mission. So why doesn't it seem like he's bound? Why doesn't it feel that way? Why doesn't it look that way? Well, the answer is because Satan is permitted to roam. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we read this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How can these two things be reconciled? On the one hand, the strong man bound. On the other hand, Satan, like a devouring lion, being permitted to roam. Well, the book of Revelation, if you go read it, which we don't have time to talk in much depth about now, but the book of Revelation makes a couple things clear. First of all, Satan is God's Satan, as Luther said. Satan is on a leash, and that leash is held by God. He is permitted to roam, but he's not permitted to destroy those whose hope is in Jesus Christ. In fact, he will only be permitted to work to the degree that God permits him to work and bring, and bring pain and bring suffering and destruction. The result of that is so that people will see their need for Jesus and repent and so that the church, those who profess Jesus Christ, will be purified. And so Satan is God's Satan. Satan is only allowed so much of a reach. Satan has a strategy. It's like a sustained strategy of disinformation warfare. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's one way in which Satan is described. And so what Satan likes to do is try to convince you that God could never actually love you. That you're actually too far gone. And that he's given up on you. Satan also would want to say to us, listen, don't get too carried away with this Christianity. I mean, keep it in its proper place. It's good, but, you know, don't give your life to it. Or Satan would, would have us believe that, you know, that sin you're cherishing, it's really no big deal. It's fine. God doesn't care. He winks at that and overlooks it. I mean, this is the present activity of this roaring lion that is seeking someone to devour but can only accomplish the purpose that God permits it to accomplish. So Satan is presently bound. We need to remember that in order to remember that as a believer, we are eternally free. This is our fourth and final point. If you're a Christian, you are free now from Satan's power. 
First Peter chapter 5, verse 9 goes on to say, resist him. So this devouring lion that's prowling around looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. 1 Peter 5, 9, Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. James says in James chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what happens when we don't take the reality of Satan seriously enough? Well, Satan can't seal our salvation, but he can rob us of our joy. Satan can't put us back in chains, but Satan can convince us, if we will let him, that we're not really free. But Paul in Galatians 5.1 says, listen, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So don't submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. So the picture, again, that the Bible gives of the Christian is not that we're just forgiven for sin, which is beautiful and would be enough, but that we're actually made new, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and made new creations. Set free. Now, that's the theological truth, but sometimes a good story reinforces that theological truth. And Lewis wrote great stories. One of his stories was uh, titled, uh, is titled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. And there's this scene at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that I think beautifully captures what we need to realize Christ has accomplished for us. So the White Witch. The White Witch has cast a spell over Narnia. Uh, it's always winter and never Christmas, kind of like Rochester in the winter, right? Always winter, never Christmas. The white witch has cast this spell. She does all kinds of horrible things to the creatures in this magical world called Narnia, including turning them into stone statues in her courtyard. Now, you got to read the book. It's for children. It's very much for adults. Aslan, the Christ figure, Aslan is killed, but Aslan rises from the dead. And one of the first things that Aslan does is go to the, the courtyard, go to the castle of the White Witch, and breathe on all these statues, that have, all these creatures that have been turned into stone, breathes on them, and they begin to come back to life again. They begin to be what they were created to be. And that is such a great picture of what happens when you become a Christian. We don't even fully grasp how much we are like a stone statue, how, how little we experience what it means to be truly free until you come to Christ. And even then, so many Christians go their entire life not experiencing that freedom, the freedom of being indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the, the breath of God on us to make us what the Apostle Paul says we are. New creation. New creations in Christ. This is the passage. This is the truth that this passage points us toward. It was veiled. We're going to talk about how Jesus veiled these truths in the parables. It was veiled here. It's made explicit, however, by the time Jesus goes to the cross and then rises from the dead. One of the songs that we'd like to sing around here is a song titled Before the Throne of God. It 
just want to read the words for you from one of the verses. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The devil is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, but there is a more powerful lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb, the book of Revelation tells us, standing as though slain, who by his blood ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. By his blood, he rescued you if you will put your trust in him. By his blood, through his suffering, you are free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the truth that is here for us in this passage. And we pray that by your spirit, you will seal these truths to our heart, to our hearts. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.